I still think it has a long way to go when it comes to female sexual abuse. But I feel like in this particular situation, male sexual abuse is it has a long way to go as well. And there's not a lot of males that speak out about it. So my hope is that by me being vulnerable and telling my story, that other men will feel comfortable coming forward and admitting it's not the American Pie Stifler's mom type. That's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. It is destructive and it hurts. I'm Alexa, and you're listening to That Sex Check, a Soulfire production. Take a nice, big, deep breath as we get started for today's episode. And I would suggest that you maybe ground yourself, tend to your heart ahead of time, be prepared for the conversation that you are going to listen to and drop into, because it's one that is so important. It's one that can be really emotion filled. It can potentially bring up some things for you, whether you have been a victim of abuse or not. And I just want to say that before we even go into recording the conversation today with me and and the guest for the show, it's potentially sensitive and also simultaneously liberating because the combo that we're going to have is one that I can understand why more people don't have it. And I can understand why it is so powerful and impactful when people do share their stories. And so sometimes you come onto the show or sometimes you prepare to listen and it's really exciting and it's lighthearted and it's like, okay, what sex tip am I going to learn? And what crazy shit is Alexa going to introduce us to? And sometimes, you know, it's Jordan coming onto the show and he's just such a character. And of course there's realness and there's rawness. And sometimes we scratch the surface of traumas and things that have gone on in our lives. And then some of the previous guests that we've had on the show, but this particular conversation is going to be a conversation about trauma and about abuse. And so I just want to prepare you for it. And I feel like times whenever I've listened to other shows, if I've just kind of been blindsided by a topic, or even very recently, certain subjects that have to do with miscarriage and pregnancy loss, if I'm not prepared for it, and they just come up, while I welcome them, and I love to listen to them and enjoy them, I realize like, whoa, sometimes I'm kind of blindsided by wow, I have like a big wave of emotion. Sometimes I love feeling my emotions and that and that's great. But sometimes I have shit to do. (laughs) And I'm like, not prepared to handle those emotions throughout the rest of the day. And so yeah, all of that really to preface that this is an important combo, it's going to be super sweet and heartfelt, I believe. And make sure to tend to your heart and care for yourself. Okay, so that's my disclaimer. I love you all so very much. And I hope that you enjoy the combo that I am having today with Justin Woodbury. Justin, thank you so much for coming on and being willing to share your story with all of our listeners. Thanks so much for having me, Alexa. Mm. So Justin, I know that you wrote a book. It's called Sheltered, But Not Protected. And I know some of the basics about your story and where you've come from. And I would love for you to give the listeners an insight, a little bit of your story and your background and what encouraged you to write the book. Great question. So my background 
is I was born and raised in an independent fundamental Baptist church. I consider it a cult because we were told that if we followed a certain set of rules and standards that were different from the world, the world was bad, the church was good. If we followed a certain set of rules and standards, we would be protected from all the bad that was happening. So most of the generation that started the church, they came up in the hippie era in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And a lot of them had experienced a lot of trauma just from that era. And so they were convinced if we can protect our kids from that type of stuff, they will be better off and they will grow up and be protected. So the name of the book is Shelter But Not Protected. So we were sheltered because they promised that we would be protected. But what happened, and just to give you an example, so we were not allowed to watch TV. We were one of the only families in the church with a TV, but it only was used for Christian type movies. We were not allowed to listen to the radio unless it was classical music. Women were not allowed to wear pants. They had to wear full length dresses. So very Amish type, but we wouldn't consider ourselves Amish, but we weren't allowed to date. If you liked the girl, it was considered mental impurity. Or if you thought about a girl, it was considered mental impurity. If you liked her, it was considered emotional impurity. And if you even held hands or anything like that, it was considered physical impurity. So very much a forbidden type environment. Within that sheltered environment, some of the worst things that you can imagine happened right within our church by church members to church members. And so that's why I call the book Shelter But Not Protected, because we are sheltered, but right within that sheltered environment, the worst types of, and it was really sexual incest and rape and sexual abuse and all sorts of sexual abuse that you can think of, everything that falls under that, and a lot of psychological abuse as well. But my particular story was that when I was 13, my mom's best friend, who was a woman that was married in her 30s with four children, she began a relationship with me. And at 13, it was a very above board relationship. I guess you could say there's nothing inappropriate going on. By the time I turned 15, it started to get coincidentally physical. If I could just say that, that there's nothing overt, but it was a lot of weird stuff. And then by the time I was 17, it turned full sexual relationship. And that changed the trajectory of my life from 17 to just a few years ago. I became this person as a result of the trauma that really, I can't say it ruined my life because I'm a better person now because of it, but it changed my life for sure. And it affected my marriage. It affected my relationships. It affected where I chose to work. And so the reason I choose to write the book to answer your question is for two reasons. One, to be an abuse advocate, to call out abuse specifically in churches. And really I have a niche, which is the IFB, the Independent Fundamental Baptist Church, because I hear the Mormon church getting just railed on a lot and the Catholic church getting railed on a lot. And the sexual abuse is rampant in every religion, I believe. And the church I grew up in is no exception whatsoever. In fact, I feel like the stricter the church, the more sexual, the more rampant the sexual abuse. I call churches like I grew up a predator's playground because you can walk the walk or you can talk the talk and you don't have to walk the walk. You can walk in with a shirt and tie and a big Bible and they'll put you in a Sunday school without giving you a background check. So that's the first reason to just continue to expose abuse. The second reason is, I guess, more niche as well, is given the perspective of sexual abuse from a male point of view. I feel like the Me Too movement has 
helped a lot of women find healing and it has really brought and shed light on the abuse of women and I'm so thankful for that. I still think it has a long way to go when it comes to female sexual abuse, but I feel like in this particular situation, male sexual abuse is it has a long way to go as well. And there's not a lot of males that speak out about it. So my hope is that by me being vulnerable and telling my story, that other men will feel comfortable coming forward and admitting it's not the American Pie Stifler's mom type. That's not what it is. That's not what it is at all. It is destructive and it hurts. It's a bad thing and it's not what Hollywood has made it up to be. So those are my two main reasons for writing the book. Yeah, and of course, so incredibly important. Yeah, like I mentioned in the intro, I can see and understand why people don't necessarily come forward with these things because it's fucking hard. You know, it's like, okay, well, I want to help liberate others. But in the before I am at a place where my nervous system is neutral telling the story that I'm essentially stirring up my trauma and I'm reliving those things. And like even to tell a good story, it's like I got to go into the emotions and feel them and be with them. And I can just imagine, yeah, what that experience has possibly been like. I mean, I would love to hear a little bit about that. When you decided, like, what was the turning point where it's like, you know what, these things, I need to talk about them and really your reasoning behind it. When I got engaged to my wife, I had kind of gotten out of that IFB culture, but I was still in it. I didn't realize it was a cult. And so when we got engaged, we had made the decision to not kiss before we got married or before we got engaged. I wouldn't choose to do that again, but that was the situation I was in at the time. When I proposed to my wife, it'll actually be 12 years and a couple of months, it was on St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. When I went to kiss her for the first time, I began to shake and tremble. And because the last person that I had remembered kissing, because we didn't remember, we didn't believe any of that. So little backstory, after all the abuse happened when I was 17, it was found out I was punished equally as was my abuser. My pastor actually scored the abuse 51 to 49, giving her 51 because she was older, but he felt like I had almost just as much responsibility in it. I never received counseling. I went to a college, graduated and came back and actually became the music director of that church for six years. So I didn't leave that IFB movement until my mid thirties. And I moved from Michigan to Colorado. So anyways, back to when I got engaged, I was shaking and my wife had to look me in the eyes and say, Jay, it's me. It's not her. But I was immediately triggered and taken back to it. Over the next several years, my wife and I had issues when it came to being sexually intimate. I remember coming home one night and Emily, my wife, had put on some lingerie. And when I came in the door, she threw me up against the wall and she began kissing me and I pushed her away. And I said, my God, get off of me. Let me walk in the door before you attack me like that. And she was brokenhearted. She got rid of all of her lingerie and she thought that I didn't love her. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was not rejecting her. I was rejecting the trauma from back when I was 17. And so as we continued to get to know each other and I continued to share more and more of my story of not just the abuse, but the way I grew up, she would say, as I would share stories of how I grew up, she would say, you should write a book. 
And then one day she said, man, it sounds like you were sheltered, but not protected. And so I give so much credit to my wife for so much. But the way I felt when first telling my story and getting it out there, it was reliving the trauma over and over and over again. And I remember when I first told Emily about it before we were married, I honestly thought she was going to break up with me. We were dating at the time. And I thought she was going to be like, I don't want to be with somebody who just sleeps around. I mean, that was literally my thinking. And she was actually the first person that said, Justin, you are a victim. You are not to blame for this. You, minors cannot give consent, right? And so that was the first time I had ever heard that from anybody. And so she provided a safe space for me to tell my story. So I would tell her the story and I would relive the trauma again. And then I started traveling a little bit for my work. And I wouldn't necessarily jump right into that part of my upbringing, but I would just kind of talk a little bit about how I grew up in a cultist church and how there's a lot of abuse. And I found that a lot of people grew up in similar situations and either knew somebody or had experienced sexual abuse themselves. And so then I started telling the story to other people and reliving it to the point to where when I actually started writing the book, I was pretty comfortable giving a 50,000 foot overview of my story. Getting into the actual details is still difficult for me. It still gets me to work up. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I like what you said, how getting to the point where you can actually tell it, which is where you have to relive it over and over again. And that's exactly what it was like. And now I'm certainly not numb to it. My heart's beating right now and my hands are clammy talking about it, but it's not like it was when I first started talking about it. Yeah, oh, I can imagine. Okay. And so as you were traveling and starting to open up and sharing your story and people, like you said, had some similar story in some way, I'm curious about what were some of the things that you heard? So, you know, there might be people who are listening to this now and they're like, oh, that's interesting that he had that experience. And they might have something in there that they experienced as, as well, but for some reason, well, for many reasons, the way that they grew up and the person that they turned into, they might still be kind of making excuses for how it happened. I think that that makes sense where it's like, yes. they might be thinking that like, oh yeah, I had a thing happen and it was a little weird. And like, I was to blame here and that, and it's probably not that bad. You know what I mean? I think there's a lot of people that have had traumatic experiences that it's like, whatever their trauma response was, fight, flight, flee, fawn, something that they just like kind of registered it and trapped it inside and then just like carried on. So I'm curious what some of those stories were like. Maybe you can give some examples of what people said that they experienced. Yeah, absolutely. There are like three responses. I would say the most common one, and mostly from women, was just sympathy, especially not in religious circles, just sympathy. I'm so sorry you dealt with that. I can't believe a 34, 35-year-old married woman would do something. What kind of sick person would do something like that? So that was the most common one. But then there were exactly what you said. There were people that would say, well, I had something similar happen, but not quite because I actually enjoyed it. Or I pursued the relationship with that person. Or I had someone tell me not about sexual abuse, but explain that their dad would beat them for anything that they did wrong. And they were like, but I just had to learn to not backtalk him, or I just had to learn to not disrespect him. And I wouldn't be as strong as I am now, but back then in my mind, I was thinking, bullshit, he's an abuser. There's never an excuse to hit a person or a wife. I should have had a supper there on time. I mean, in my circles, that was normal for a husband 
to beat his kids and even in some cases abuse and physically beat his wife for different reasons and they would always make excuses. So that would be probably the second response that I would get. The third response would be from men. I never had a, a women, woman do this, but a man that would be like, hey, I got a question. Like, was she hot? Or did you enjoy it? Or man, if I was in that situation, I would have been banging her all day long, like just making excuses. I've even had some men berate me and say, oh, you're just a little buttercup, aren't you? For being able to have sex with older women. One of them even said, man, there's nothing better than having sex with an older woman. You know why? Because they won't tell, they won't swell, and they're grateful is what that person told me. And so a lot of very disrespectful and arrogant type of responses, because I don't think it is ignorant, but it's ignorant with conviction, which is my favorite word for arrogance is ignorance with conviction. They're just so arrogant about it and very dismissive. So those were kind of the three types of responses. Ugh. Well, I'm 34 <laughs> and will be 35 <laughs> this year. And so to even hear that, and then first off, then to hear an older woman, I'm like, Am I officially an older woman? Oh, no. You know, like, <laughs> that's the first thing. <laughs> and second, I can understand, you know, the women sympathizers of sorts where, especially if they're mothers, or it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, how are you not protected from this? And in a lot of ways, I can understand logically, and I can even understand why some men would respond in the way that they responded to you because they are ignorant and they have yes. no idea what that experience could possibly be like. And that's really frustrating. Fuck, that's so frustrating. Yeah, and I hope that having public and open conversations like this help to bring reality and truth because the truth is when you're going to have, you know, your first kiss with your going to be wife and you're trembling and you're having a literal trauma response, that's the thing that needs to be considered. That's the thing that you pay attention to. Not, oh, I bet. Yeah. Well, did you enjoy it? That doesn't fucking matter. That doesn't matter. You know, like so many people even speak to maybe a woman who's experienced some kind of sexual abuse, but she had an orgasm. Well, but you liked it. This doesn't mean that like all of a sudden, because I had a physical biological response doesn't mean that, or even I emotionally in some way decided to protect myself by telling myself that I enjoyed it so that I could be a little bit more okay with the fact that this was put upon me. It's like, well, you came, so you had to have liked it. This is really fucked up and backwards. That is right. If I can just speak to that for a second. So yeah. when I was 17, had never held a girl's hand, when we would watch any type of even Christian movies that had any type of cleavage or anything like that, my sister or my mom or my sister's friends would get up and hold a pillow up to the TV so we couldn't see the cleavage. My mom would rip out the Sears and Roebuck catalog, bra and panty section and stuff and lingerie section. So at 17, I had never seen anything, never done anything. And so my hormones were raging. And so when somebody asks the question, when you were 17, did you enjoy it? Hell yeah, I did. I did. That doesn't make me any less or a female, anybody, any less of a victim when they're a minor. Yeah. So I completely agree. It is. It's ass backwards. Yeah, totally. Well, actually, I have a question before we shift. How would you define emotional and sexual abuse? And you kind of touched on this, but some of the misconceptions about it before I start talking about like ways that you wound up navigating it and getting to a place like where you are now and can regulate and all of that. So just for people who are listening, 
again, to just repeat that kind of the difference between emotional or defining emotional abuse and sexual abuse. And then what are some of the common misconceptions about it? Because, and we just kind of touched on those, but I maybe a little bit of a recap. Sure. And I'm certainly no expert, but in my experience growing up, the, the sexual abuse, it's such a broad definition, but my specific experience, sexual abuse was when a minor is taken advantage of sexually by an adult, a responsible adult. And I mean, there's rape when an adult forces himself on another adult and, and that's rape and stuff. But the, the sexual abuse that I'm referring to, and maybe I can call it being molested or whatever, it, it's hard for me to define actually what happened. So I use the broader term just because it's really difficult for me to be like, well, was I molested? Because I wasn't a little kid and, and stuff. But th that's how I would define sexual abuse in my situation is being sexually taken advantage of as a minor by an adult. Emotional abuse. That's such a broad term too, and I have a difficult time off the top of my head defining that, but I can give example after example of emotional abuse. But I, I do, I think it's when a spouse manipulates another spouse, when a parent manipulates emotionally their child, or when two people do that, emotional manipulation, I think is abuse. And I know there's so much more terms than that, but that's what it's coming to off the top of my head. Yeah. And I think even when I ask that question, I think like the deeper question that I have is I speak with people in relationships of all sorts and who have been in relationships of all sorts. And there's a difference between you're in a relationship and you guys fight a lot and you argue a lot or you raise voices and maybe there's name calling and there's tension. There's a lack of tools in order to both regulate and understand what's going on to be able to get to resolution and collaboration and all of that. And then there's a difference between that and being in a relationship and it's two people and one person is being absolutely over the top, ruthless, is overtly being a bully, is being mean, is essentially taking all of their anger, frustration, negative energy and emotions and pouring it onto another person. And then the other person can basically do nothing right, is constantly walking on eggshells, is fearful of if there isn't physical abuse yet, that any moment in time, there will be a snap. And then there will be bringing that emotional abuse into the physical realm and being fearful, actually fearful of one's safety and safety in their body, safety for their, if they have children and safety for their life. And so those things are different because one is it's two people that are trying to be in relationships and be in a relationship and they have no tools and they had no model growing up and they have no idea how to do this really fucking important thing that we don't learn how to do well pretty much ever, because most of us don't have great role models for that and didn't learn it in school, but we're still using that Pythagorean theorem every day. I just like to like, I don't know, I shit on the Pythagorean theorem every now and then because I'm like, I'm not using that. <laughs> but I understand why we learned it in logic and critical thinking and whatever bullshit. But still, that is a big difference between being with someone who actually would be labeled in a psychiatric kind of consult that they have narcissistic abuse and narcissistic personality disorders and all that. Like the, those things are different. I think those terms get thrown around a lot and it kind of lessens the potency. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I dated a narcissist. You too just didn't know what you were like. You didn't need to be in a relationship. You didn't know what you were doing. You played equal back and forth with this. And then there's over here, like this situation, this is something so different. And so I like to just kind of differentiate the two so that the people who are 
actually truly victims of an experience of like their entire realities being shifted and changed by other people's impact on it, that they actually get the spotlight and the care and the concern and the consideration that they fucking deserve. Then you were just in a relationship that you needed to break up, like however long ago or whatever, like you two were just like not vibing. (laughs) That is so powerful. I completely agree. Narcissism has become this huge overall arching term. Like everyone's a narcissist. And I wrote a book recently that said there's very few narcissists. Actually, There's a lot of people who have problems and issues and insecurities, but I completely agree with what you're saying. It's powerful. Totally. And I also, at the same time, don't want to diminish anyone's trauma. their traumatic experience, because it doesn't, at the end of the day, if it registers in your body and you go to go into a new relationship or have an experience with another person and your heartbeat is, it quickens, your palms get sweaty, you get clammy, you dissociate, you lose your words, your breathing's fast. Like it doesn't matter what we call it. You experience something fucked up and your body needs to process that in some way, shape or form in order for you to be able to regulate and live the life and have the experiences and connections and relationships that you ultimately want to. And that is possible, even if you have experienced anywhere on the spectrum of a traumatic experience. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I love to talk about that a little bit with you. How did you deal with it all? I hear in that, that you started speaking up, you started sharing with your wife and then started traveling and sharing it with others. So was there any let's say professional help that you sought out around this time that helped you to process what tools have really stood out to you that have helped you with this journey? Yeah. So if I can even go back 20 plus years ago, when it first happened, how I processed with it was I turned to eating. I became an emotional eater. And over a period of 20 years, I gained about 140 pounds and became a gorge eater and stuff. So that's how I dealt with it up until about a year and a half ago. When I started telling my story, I felt a little piece of myself healing each time I told the story. Ultimately, writing the book, well, let me back up. I did get counseling because in my book, one of my recommended steps at the end is like, if you've gone through abuse, like get away from the abusive environment, recognize, call it abuse. Don't make excuses for your abuser, call it abuse. And one of the steps is get counseling. And so I did get counseling. I had to go to a few different counselors to find out which one was the best for me. I purposely did not seek out Christian counselors because I don't believe a lot of Christian counselors, just because you claim to be a Christian and you have the Bible doesn't make you a qualified, certified counselor. And so that was my experience. I'm not saying all Christians are like that, but my experience was like, you don't need a degree. All you need is the Bible and some common sense. And that's what, so I, when we were looking for counselors for me, I purposely stayed away from that, but I saw some trauma counselors. I even met with a sexual, I forget her official title, but it was a sexual counselor to talk. And that helped for sure without getting into too much detail, things in the bedroom for my wife and I opened up dramatically when I met with a sex therapist and she helped me work through some of my triggers that would happen in the bedroom. So that helped for sure. But I think the biggest thing that helped was writing the book and then publishing it and putting it out there. Writing it took me probably up to the 90% healing mark there's something about publishing it and putting it out there for the entire world to see 
that it just almost seemed like it closed a chapter in my life. Not that I've completely healed, but that a chapter in my life has closed. And now I'm on this new chapter of not just healing, but th thriving. I mean, I've lost 100 pounds in the past year and more to come hopefully as it goes on and so there's just been this new thing what i can think back to is just the book when the book got published there's just this feeling i read a quote where somebody said to forgive is to set a captive free only to realize that that captive was you and so through the process of writing the book and publishing it i released the hold that I feel like my abuser had on me. And I didn't even realize that was going to happen, but it did. I don't know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. And so you would say that through the book and through the storytelling, really, and putting it out there, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, I have nothing left to hide. It's all out there. I'm free. It's like, as you were saying it, I was like, it sounds like a big life exhale, like a big, like universal exhale. Like I have nothing left here. And it sounds like in that process and writing the story and all of that, you were able to reach forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, which is so huge. I mean, I have experiences in my life that are nowhere near this, but you know, just like, I think about my biological father leaving when I was three and then the lack of relationship and feeling, definitely feeling abandoned, started a new family, had three other daughters that I knew nothing about and gave them everything that I like I thought he was giving them everything that I never got to have and that I wanted and all of these things. And when in the forgiveness conversation comes up, it's so hard because I'm like, I know that this will set me free and blah, blah, blah. And I want you to hurt. I want you to feel that you fucked up. I want you to live all the way until the day you die and regret that you did this. But the more I hold on to that, the more suffering that both of us feel and not that I necessarily care about how he feels in that like experience or like, and what that means and all that, but for me, and so I keep doing the forgiveness work and I write the letters and I feel like I come to some sort of resolution. And then there's usually some next layer to healing or like, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm doing the things the self-care. I've got the support and all that. And then it's like all of a sudden there's another layer to it. And I'm like, why am I like, fuck that motherfucker again? What happened here? <laughs> like, <laughs> I thought we were at peace. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a process and it's not just a one and done. For, at least for me, it was a repeating process. I came to a point a couple of years ago, actually, while I was writing the book, I didn't want to write it in a place of bitterness I wanted to be angry. It feels justified to be angry, but I wanted to be balanced in it as well, especially knowing a lot of my readers were going to still be in that cult-minded mentality, and I wanted to reach them. I want my book to help everybody, but I have a special heart for the people who are still stuck in that cult and need to get out. So I really wanted to write it from a place of not being bitter. And so when I got to the chapter about Carolyn Mathias, she's the only person in the book that I call out by name. I changed everyone else's name in the book, but this woman never apologized. She actually left our church and went to another church and she's a predator. So I have no problem putting her name out there. I would love to actually look her in the eye in the court situation. And so I keep waiting for the day that she tries to sue me for slander and stuff, because I'd love to be able to prove my story. Anyways, side note, but I was going through getting ready to write the chapter about her. And a couple of weeks before 
Emily and I had watched, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's where on Halloween every year, there's no consequences. So the people could go out and do whatever they wanted. There's no rules. Did you ever watch that movie? I forget the name of it. But... I don't know what that, it sounds like Mardi Gras every year. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that, but except it was with this twist where people were getting murdered and stuff. And so I remember Emily asking me, what would you do if there are no consequences? And without even thinking, I said, I would fight in Michigan. I would find Carolyn. I would kill her. And I would enjoy every minute of it. That's putting it nicely, Alexa. What I actually said was way worse, but mm. she looked at me shocked and I looked at myself shocked. I'm like, I can't believe it. That just came out of my mouth. I had no idea that was in me, but it just showed how much hatred and bitterness I had towards her. And so I wouldn't write that chapter until I had dealt with it. And I struggled back and forth trying to figure out because I felt at the time that forgiveness was saying that they didn't do anything wrong. And that's, I would never say that she absolutely did wrong. And I thought that forgiveness meant that I had to be willing to sit across from her and have a meal with her and stuff. It, like it meant restoration and all, all sorts of things that I grew up being taught. And so I wouldn't have anything to do with that. And I thought, until the day I die, I'm not going to sit down with this woman and, and I'm not going to admit that what she did was okay. So I've still held on to Christian beliefs and believing in, in God and stuff. So for me, it came to one day where I just said out loud, God, I'm not willing to forgive her, but please make me willing. Because at that point, it was starting to really affect my marriage with Emily. And it started affecting my relationships. And I was just desperate. And I said, God, you've got to make me willing. And the next day, I woke up and each day I would get ready to write that chapter and I would say, what would you do if there are no consequences? And every day I'd be like, no, I'd absolutely go to Michigan and do my thing. And that next day after I just cried out, I woke up and I said, what would you do? And I'd be like, I don't know what I would do, but I certainly wouldn't do that. It was just like it had gone, it had been taken away from me. And that was a huge turning point for me. With that being said, there's still been times where I've had to remind myself of that situation because I do get angry and be like, what the hell? Yeah. Sex and Love Co. is officially back in bed with Yoni Pleasure Palace. We really are a match made in heaven. YPP continuously amazes me. Once a company known for their Yoni eggs and crystal pleasure wands, they have grown into a truly remarkable brand with many services and additional products like glass, steel, and wood pleasure tools for those of you who like a more natural element in your toy collection, as well as waterproof sex blankets. You know, that's one of my faves. Yoni steam herbs and stools, strap-on harnesses, specialty vibrators, anal toys and prostate massagers, water and oil-based lubricants, breast massage oil, menstrual products, and so much more. If you can believe, I have quite a collection of things that fall under the category of adult products. By far, the most impressive part of my collection are the items I have by Yoni Pleasure Palace. Every purchase I make or gift that I give from YPP has an element of sacredness to it, and that truly takes them above and beyond any other brand I've tried or that I've worked with. I've got great news, my love. With our recent recommitment and partnership, Yoni Pleasure Palace has increased my code, that sex chick, from taking 10% off of your order to 15% off your entire YPP purchase. Hell yes. So head to the link in the show notes to add Yoni Pleasure Palace to your collection. And don't forget to use the promo code ThatSexChick at checkout for 15% off your entire order. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our show is called That Sex Chick. I mean, we talk about all sorts of things, but under the umbrella of sex and intimacy and closeness and all of that. And you mentioned something that I'm also very curious about if you're open to chatting a little bit more about it, but the fact that you saw a sex therapist. And the reason why I am particularly interested in this is that my husband and I, Jordan, we work with, so I work with women, he works with men, and we work with couples. And that's of primarily heteronormative relationships. But of course, we have a handful of clients that work with us that are same gender and all that. But primarily, we're looking at male, female couples. And the majority of the sex and relationship, let's say discrepancy or the sex discrepancy, and this is the most common is he wants more sex and she's closed off or closed, kind of close to it for many, many reasons. And usually it's, she's kind of lost herself and lost touch with how to care for herself and love herself. And she needs to essentially go through an individuation process, like where she becomes whole in herself outside of the relationship in order to feel filled enough to have something to bring to her partner instead of literally giving him the last drops of what's left um, and kind of self-sacrificing. So that's something that we see a lot, you know, just kind of overarching. And then underneath, like, in that dynamic where he wants it more than she does, there's pain during sex and trauma after birth and past sexual abuse and that kind of thing. On the flip side, I would say for every maybe 10 couples that we work with, there's maybe one or two where the discrepancy is the other way around, where she wants it more than he does. And she can't understand why he is not available. She can't understand why all of her advances, the lingerie, the trying to make an environment and her initiating. And a lot of times a woman in a group of, let's say 10 or so, one or two of the women are so deeply affected by the fact that the men, you know, like we get into like, so let's say a call or a women's group and everyone's speaking and the women are like, I'm so unavailable and I can't do it. I'm touched out, blah, 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 blah. And then there's the women who are like weeping. They're like, I just want to be wanted. I just want to be touched. And a lot of times when we kind of go a little bit deeper, usually the men that they are in partnership with have had some sort of abuse. Really? Yes. Yes. And they're craving it and they're craving connection with their partner and their partner isn't usually isn't able to talk about it or they're able to talk about it up to a certain degree, but it's tough because it seems like there's a lot of support and a lot of encouragement for support when it comes to women. It's like, here, go to the circle, go to this healing. There's a lot of personal development that's really being led by women. And for men, it seems like, you know, we don't feel our feelings and we kind of shove them down. And all the reasons why we were talking about towards the beginning of our show where they're like, but I enjoyed it. And it's like all these things like keep them silent. And they might know about, especially within the realms of personal development, they might have an idea and awareness around it, but are really challenged by how to actually move through it. So I'm thinking about a couple that we've been working with for some time where he like kind of gets in a good stride. He's showing up for her. He's able to be sexual. And then there's some kind of shift that happens where all of a sudden he kind of just like closes down and is really awkward and like uncomfortable with it and kind of panics and really avoids and all of this. And I know that there is some level of religious or sexual abuse behind the scenes. And so I think that if you're open to it, sharing what that process like actually looked like for you would help so many women who are listening to the show with regards to their partners and how to show up for them 
because it's really hard for them not to take it personally. Like at some point it's like, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And then it's like, but what about my needs too? And then they start processing essentially their own trauma on their other side. But then of course, if there's men who are actually listening to the show as well, that do resonate with these stories, like what can they actually do? What does that work really look like? Wow. (laughs) So Emily and I would fall into the exception category where she wanted it way, way, way more than I did when we were first married. And she did feel unwanted and unloved and rejected and unattractive when we were first married. And, you know, I'd be willing, Alexa, to, it's funny, I get accused the other day of being on podcasts and telling my story in order to sell books. And it's hilarious because anybody that's ever written a book and didn't get a book deal knows that you don't make money from writing a book. So it made me laugh. But with all that being said, I would be willing to email you the foreword because my wife wrote the foreword of the book. And I'd be willing to email you the forward if you wanted to share that with your listeners, because talking about it from a wife's point of view that felt rejected, unloved, unwanted, unattractive for 10 years into our marriage and how she dealt with that, it's the best part of the book. It just hands down is. I mean, people have written her from all over and just said, thank you so much for sharing that. But with our marriage, it was that. It's not that I didn't want sex. I mean, I certainly didn't want it as much as her, but there was this trauma. And anytime Emily would initiate it, whether it was just her hand on my leg or anything, I would move her hand. And sometimes she would just start crying and she'd say, I hate what that woman did to you. And at the time, I didn't even realize that that's what was going on. I just said, no, it's not that I'm just tired or whatever. First of all, going to that sex therapist I mean, she opened up a whole new world for me when it came to oral sex, because that was something that, because of what happened when I was 17, I wanted nothing to do with both ways. Like, I didn't want her doing any of that on me, and there is no chance in hell that I was going to do that on her. And just to put it out there, it's because my first experience with that was with my abuser. There's a whole long story, but it was horrible experience for me. She had a yeast infection at the time, if I can just say that. And I was not expecting her to do what she did to me. And I had been working all day and then she wanted to kiss me afterwards. It's just horrible experience for me. So I wanted nothing to do with that. So the sex therapist actually talked me through all of that to where I was willing to try it and experiment. And as it turns out, it's amazing when it's right and it's consensual. But anyways, to get back on track for 10 years that's what it was. Emily always felt unloved, unwanted, unattractive. And so I got to the point where I was like, I'll meet with a sex therapist. I'll go to the doctor because she thought that I had low testosterone and and different things. And so I went through all of that just to try to get that better. And between some doctor's visits, the sex therapist and losing weight too, for me, it was a huge thing. Now I have this energy and this drive that I've never had before. I I feel like a teenager again, because that's honestly, I mean, I'm back to that weight almost and stuff. So it's changed a lot, but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's. Yeah. 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 And maybe did the sex therapist give you exercises to do? Did she just encourage you? Like, how about you try this this week or maybe breathing exercises, anything like that to help really regulate nervous system or maybe a framework before going into sex, like connect in this way and then do this thing. 
Now, strangely enough, she sat down and she wrote a diagram of the female vagina. I don't know why she did it, and I don't know why that helped, because it's not like I hadn't seen one before. But her writing it and then labeling all the different layers and parts, I don't know. I don't know why, but <laughs> once she did that... Okay. And I think my desire to change, too. I mean, can't say that I enjoyed that particular session. And so there's a part of me that's like, man, as soon as I can get over this part of it, the better, because I'm not really enjoying watching a, a stick drawing of what the female vagina looks like. But I think between that, just the simple education. And remember, yeah. I was homeschooled, so I didn't go through sex education. Right. Uh, that just didn't exist. So for some reason, her drawing a picture and explaining it. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, I mean, she... Yeah, no, that makes sense. It does. It makes sense. So that education piece, because a lot of people have so much hesitation towards moving forward with any kind of sexual advance because they feel so ill-equipped and there's so much pressure on men to just know what to do, that they're assumed the initiator. They are assumed that women are submissive and men are dominant and that the men are just going to know what to do. Wow. As if we come with an instruction manual, like laid out across our chest, you know, let's just like, oh, you know, like twist these things, pull this thing, tickle this thing, lick this thing, push on this thing. Voila, you are a sex God. And women are just self-pleasure and all that, depending on what culture they grew up in, which is the vast majority is like your body determines your worth and don't touch yourself and all these things and wait for this and all that. And so they're completely disconnected with what they know. And so like, you've got someone going in blind, that had no education feels all this pressure of like, I'm supposed to know what to do when that like, you need to know what to do so that you can please her so that this doesn't go sideways. And this isn't awkward. And a lot of that experience also adds like layers to the trauma of sorts, because men, a lot of times, if they're in that environment, start to associate that pressure with performance. And if they're not performing, then they're less of a man. And so they'll start avoiding sex. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The anxiety. So that performance anxiety. And so that will affect their ability to get hard, to stay hard, to ejaculate or not ejaculate like it's or ejaculate too quickly. And so it plays such a huge role. And you've got women a lot of times that are like, they might feel some kind of way. And then they'll think that they're being submissive when they're really just being passive, laying there, not giving any instruction because they don't know. Or over years, if they get frustrated and they still don't know how to communicate anything, then they become critical yes. and they have this kind of like sharp tone in this, like their man is supposed to know what to do and how to do it. And then if they try to say a little to the left or whatever, but it's not received well, then it just kind of makes them get a little bit even bigger in their energy. And it's just like, this is not a safe environment. This is the most vulnerable thing that we are choosing to do with only each other. This is it. And it's not safe for either party. And I think that those kinds of dynamics, and it can look like lots of different ways, but those kinds of dynamics create that major overarching discrepancy where we're both kind of walking on eggshells, avoiding this thing that both of us want, but we just want it in a different way. But like our past and our histories and where we came from and all that is just like in the bedroom with us. Yes. Like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That, I mean, it's like you were peeking, like watching the beginning of our marriage because you just, you nailed it on the head. That performance anxiety that absolutely happened. Now it wasn't even that I didn't have the desire. I had the desire, but I couldn't perform. And it was just this compound effect. First, she felt undesired. So then I felt this pressure to make her feel desired and yeah. it's horrible. And not to beat a dead horse, but it's bullshit to say that sexual trauma is to minimize people's sexual trauma because I have a wife who I love dearly that would disagree with anybody by saying male sexual abuse is most men's dream because it affects you. 
it does. Yeah. It sucks. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The beginning of our marriage up until a few years ago was, was like that performance anxiety, this downward spiral of never feeling like I could make Emily happy in the bedroom was sucked. What's it look like now? Getting better? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know really what to compare it to. I have a few close male friends that I talk to. It's interesting. One of them actually has experienced the wife not wanting it as much because she had some trauma happen. So we talk about that. And I have another friend. I think it's normal for what we're experiencing is normal for a couple in their early 40s. And it's so much better. There's not this expectation Emily has come so far. I mean, she's read books and she sought out her own therapy to seal, to find out how to deal with somebody that has had sexual trauma. Of course, I don't know how different our experience is with your listeners because she grew up in an IFB church as well. And we were taught that sex is for procreation. So if anything outside of that, it wasn't necessary. So both of us kind of had this thinking in our heads, although she got over it way quicker than I did. But yeah, it's good now. It's good. And it's just getting better. I don't think it's the best it can be, but it's getting better. And we just talked about it the other day. We're both very satisfied and pleased with where we are at with our sex life for sure. I like that. I love that so much with the added little note towards the end here. It's like, there's hope. It can absolutely change. You can absolutely transform and transition out and start the healing process. Sometimes just using the term heal, because it's kind of like, well, if you get sick and then you take supplements or whatever to heal yourself. And then you were sick and now you're healed using that kind of language, make kind of positions it to where there's an end. But when it comes to healing from abuse or healing from trauma or healing from something in this realm, healing doesn't look like that. It kind of looks like all over the place sometimes. Like we were saying before, these layers where it's like, wow, I feel pretty at peace. I feel pretty good. And then there's maybe a next life experience that happens, next big thing. And there's big emotions and stuff gets shooken up. And then it's like, oh, well, there's a little bit more in there. And so healing, the phrase healing isn't linear. And so having a partner that is so down, that is like, I'm your fucking person. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Bring it. Yeah. Bring it. I'm going to bring it all. You bring it all. And let's do life collaboratively. Let's actually do life together as partners. This is not for you just to manage and deal with on your own, though I can't do it for you. I can walk alongside you and I can commit to doing my own healing work. That way we can continue living our dream instead of feeling like, we're just kind of dancing around in a nightmare in and out of a nightmare where it's like, well, all these hopes and dreams, as long as you keep onto that hope and you do keep the faith that better is possible. And it's not just possible for everybody else. Seemingly it's possible for you. And it takes doing that work and committing to that work, continuously revisiting, sitting at the table and having those conversations. Like you're saying that you're having with Emily and going like, how are we doing? And like giving gratitude and thanks to look how far we've come. And so super important. I have one more question. It's not on my list of questions here, but it's one that I'm really curious about, which I haven't mentioned in the show, but I grew up Catholic. Any of the trauma that I would say that I experienced was like self-imposed via the Bible. You know, uh, it was like shame and guilt and yes. unworthiness and my place as a woman. And it's those kinds of things that I feel like I'm navigating when it's different, but it's my story. It's my own version here. And my husband grew up with his grandparents as pastors of an evangelical charismatic Christian church. Oh, wow. 
So like slaying the spirit and like, to me as a Catholic, when I heard that there were churches that had like bands and like drums and stuff, I was like, blasphemy. This is like, this, what kind of bullshit is this? Like all other Christian organizations are bullshit, you know? So like, I also grew up with like my faith in Christ and all that is superior to all of the others. And like, this is just a bunch of garbage. So I also got the like weird chip on my shoulder. And so it's just really weird. Like all of it is really weird. And so here's my question in this now is when I was in my early mid twenties, I read a book called sex at dawn. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's Christopher Ryan and Kachilda Jetha. They're a married couple that's very anthropological based, anthropologically based and biologically based. And it's about primates and why we mate and why we stray and infidelity and love. And it's a nice thick book. And it just cracked me wide open where I was like, holy fucking shit. People are doing what, where? And how and what's the history of relationships and monogamy and sex and animals and all of it. And I was just like, it was really that book that was the first time where I was like, you know what? I was fucking lied to. I was lied to like straight up. And it was the first time that I was like, I'm not even going to, cause up to, up to that point, I was having like a touch and go, like push against, like, I don't think I'll ever go back to the church, but I'm not quite sure. And every now and then I get it, I get into like a sticky spot and I'd be like, you know what? I'm just going to turn to God. Like God's going to fix this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to, and it's this like really fucked up cycle. And I read that book. And then I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm fucking done. I'm throwing that over there. And I'm going this way. I'm going to forge a new path for myself. I'm just not even going to acknowledge this bullshit anymore. Like this is fucked up. And so I hard swung the pendulum the other way and felt really good about it for a while. But I will also say that with regards to new age spirituality and finding like I'm sitting at my desk right now and I've got like a little Ganesh, which is like the God of the elephant God of abundance. And I've got like little crystally things around and I've got like a little image of a clitoris and I've got like a little lady that says nourish. So I've got like these you know, secular kind of spiritual new agey kind of things my tarot cards and stuff, you know, stuff when I was a kid, where if I thought about reading the, like, I would pretend I wasn't reading the astrology section in the newspaper when it came out, I'd like pretend. And I'd hear about the tarot in the city because I lived in New Orleans and I'd be like, oh, you know, no, nobody does those rich wishes. That's Satan, you know? And it's crazy because I really only got that information when I was in school. It wasn't like I heard any of that really at home because my home environment was totally different to the school environment I went to. So then I judged my home environment as well, which is, okay, I'm like totally off on a tangent here. Let me run it, rein it back in. I am now mid thirties and through the process of like, let's say early mid twenties and like really just pendulum swinging the other direction with all the new age spirituality stuff, I would be really curious about it. And like, what if I worship the earth and all creation? And I just traded out the word God for universe and, or for energy or for higher power or something like that. And I started to toy with what does my faith actually look like? What do I have faith in? Because it still was a big question. You know, first it was like nothing. And then it was like, "Eh, there's something there, but I'm not quite sure. Then I felt like my container for it all was too loose. And I felt a little lost. And I've started to really through the years, like kind of ground and come back into myself and be open. Because I have one of my best friends, maid of honor in my wedding is like, she's 99.9% Ashkenazi Jewish. Like her family is like, she's first generation North American, speaks Hebrew. And 
you know, like I see that and I hear about their, not just their faith or their religion, but their ethnicity. And I hear about, you know, that, and I have that, you know, influence in my life. And then I have other friends that come from Christian backgrounds and other friends that come from somewhere in California where they tried to preach. There's nothing non-denominational, nothing. You believe whatever you want to believe. So I have like all these interesting influences. And now my husband and I are ready to start our family and it's all kind of resurfacing. And I'm like, what do we do here? You know, because there's that question where my mom put me into Catholic school and I was raised in that way. When I asked her about it, she said, I thought you needed structure. I didn't have a father in my life. I thought you needed structure. And so I was like, oh, well, I don't know if you know how fucked up that has kind of made me, but thank you for thinking (laughs) that, you know, like I understand why she did it. So I don't necessarily blame her. I'm working on not blaming her steadily. And I love her dearly. And so now the question for my husband and I has been like, what does it actually look like? And are we interested in in entertaining the thought about following Christ, following more Christian? Are we open? Like even going to say it, it's like parts of me are like recoiling because I'm like, what? How do we reconcile all of this? Because you mentioned that you still have the faith. And so it's like, how do you reconcile the fucked up shit that organization and structure and dogma and shame and guilt and trauma and abuse that comes under the guise of belief and faith and all of this and still have it in you to go, and Jesus is my guy or, and to still go, I'm going to believe these principles that they are inherently good Like, where do you meet? Because that's something that is really weighing on me these days. And certainly our relationship where we're just entertaining, what could it look like? And every part of me is like, there's this really curious, like tendrils coming out that are like, what if I go back over here and just see what's there? And then there's like the rest of me that's like, bear down, no, protect yourself, protect your future family. Like this is a no. So I'm very curious how that has happened for you. I know I spoke for like a hot minute there. So So I sympathize and empathize with everything you just said. For the past, I think for the time I left Michigan in 2010 till just even recently, Emily and I have spent time deconstructing from our religion, from being racist, from being homophobic, from being judgmental, from being hateful, and deconstructing from that and trying to separate what we were taught the Bible says and what the Bible actually says and how much of it we believe, how much of God we believe in. About a year ago, we came to a place where we knew who God is not. God is not this, sorry to get to political, but God is not this Trump-loving, gay-hating, racist, bigot person that conservative Christians have conjured up to say he is. And we have gotten angry. We have unfriended people. We've gotten arguments with our family because all my family is still conservative. Alexa, I feel everything you're saying. There has been so many times where I have come so close to saying, fuck this and fuck everything that I was brought up believing. And in a sense, we did. I mean, in 2020, up to that point, we were still attending church, and then the country shut down, our church shut down. And when it opened back up, we never went back to church. And so until two Sundays ago, I hadn't stepped foot in the church, and I've enjoyed every minute of not being in a church. (laughs) I think 
being away from it has helped me deconstruct even more. And so I guess to answer your question, I don't know because I'm still in that journey myself. I like the idea of bringing my kids up the right way. And I completely connected with what you're saying that you're thinking of starting a family now. And so that's all bringing back up because the moment that I looked down into my son's eyes when he was born eight years ago, I was struck with this overwhelming sense, like, what am I going to do with him? Like, my parents fucked up pretty bad when they brought us to church in the church they brought us up in. But there were some good things that came out of it. I don't regret every single experience. There were some good that came out of it. So what am I going to do? And so Emily and I have just had those conversations, like, how are we going to raise our kids? What church are we going to bring them into? And the church we attend now, I don't know if it would be non-denominational. It's a Christian church but they have the drums up there and the guitars and the fog machines and stuff. (laughs) And we literally thought people were going to hell that probably similar to what your Catholic upbringing was like, we were taught that just a microphone, we weren't allowed to use microphones because they said that the way women or women were picked on the way they got close to the microphone, they're acting sensual and stuff. The closer I get to the microphone, the sexier the voice. Yeah, the breathiness, all that stuff. So (laughs) all of that we've thrown out and stuff, but deconstructing has been a wonderful thing. And I have friends that have deconstructed to the point where they're atheists, they don't believe in God. And I have people who have deconstructed and then have reconstructed and are right back to where they started, which I find extremely sad, but that's their path and that's what they want to do. And then people fall somewhere in the middle. And that's what we've tried to strike is a middle balance. I feel like I have family members who think I'm going to hell and they truly believe that, but it's a journey and we're still on it. So we know who God isn't. And we like, yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had a conversation with my parents the other day. I think they watched a wheel of fortune and they're just very, still homophobic. Most of my conservative friends are, and they started trying to argue with me about whether people are born that way and all that stuff. And I'm like, isn't the greatest commandment in the Bible is to love God and to love others? Isn't that the greatest commandment? Like, who fucking cares? Anything else other than that? Are they born that way? Do Black Lives Matter? Like, who cares? Love God, love others. You know what I mean? Like, I just had to tell my parents that and remind a lot of conservative friends, like, if you really are believing in the Bible that you're always quoting to me, then follow the greatest commandment, love God and love others and quit judging people for lifestyles that you don't agree with, that you think are whatever. And you know what I mean? Like I have to have that conversation with them using their own weapon against them, I guess, saying, how about just loving God, loving others, quit judging. Yeah. Okay. So you don't have to figure it out either. Cool. <laughs> I don't, I don't. If I ever do, I'll let you know. But no, we're I'll shoot you a message. We're just carefully navigating it and stuff. And shoot me a message. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting in the waters of the unknown, you know? And yeah, I'm still figuring out what I want to believe. And I'm also giving myself space to believe many things at a time. And I think some people of Christian faith would say, well, you shouldn't do that. You should, which One of my coaches says a should is a could covered in shame. So, you know, when you're like, I should do this or I should do that. And Catholic faith for sure taught me all kinds of interesting ways to experience shame. But you should only believe in one God and one Jesus. And when I have these beautiful people in my life that believe differently and I love them so dearly. And so it's like, I believe in what they believe in, not to the degree that they believe it. And I love them. And so I like to hear the word of whatever they have faith in 
because interestingly enough, it sounds a lot like the word of God and they are all basically the same. And if I could just believe it's all God's work generally, I guess I'm open to crafting a relationship. I think I phrased it the other day that before the faith and the way to be was put upon me and I wasn't given a choice and I wasn't encouraged to forge my own relationship with any of it. It was just, this is the way that it's done. And now I'm starting to open up to the possibility or the idea of what does this look like if I forge an actual relationship with it? What do I then choose? How do I make it mine? Yeah. And it's interesting because I, my husband is, he's just the most beautiful creature I've ever met in my entire life. And I'm so grateful every day that he chose me because it just blows my mind. And he's just so sweet and honest with his feelings about it all. And he's like, we just try it on and see what happens. And he's like, I'm down with Jesus. I want to hear his word. Like he's just so silly and playful. And I also love his perspective when he's like, I don't think we need to find a place that's like, the only way to live is through the Bible, you know, that it's the only way to do it. You've got to take it all literally. So we're in the inquiry now of like, where would we go to a place where we could experience worship that it's not so strictly this way, but it's more, just more free flowing and more open. And so you say up to a couple of Sundays ago, we actually went to church for the first time, like two Sundays ago, not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before. Yeah, we did. And I'm like, I reserve the right to leave at any point in time. I can hit the exit button anytime. Right. Cool. So really, really interesting. This whole religion versus faith. Yeah. This is the whole subject and it's fascinating and sometimes scary yeah. to me anyway. And I'm down it's life. So yeah. Thank you. I'm curious. What was your experience going to church? Was it freaky? Was it scary? Well, I went to one with the gems and dirt drums and the oh, yeah. and the things because that's actually what Jordan grew up with. I grew up judging those things. I was like, where do we get our dry cracker and our sip of wine that we all drink of after each other and kneel until we're absolutely uncomfortable, yeah. you know, and sing really boring songs, all that. Yeah. I'm like, that's the way. Yeah. So I'm like in this place and there's hundreds of people and I'm like, this is weird. And also like, that many people congregating with the belief and with the faith, it's palpable. Yes. It's a feeling for yes. sure. Yes. I don't know if it's a culty feeling. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So I take it all like a little bit of a grain of salt, you know, and Jordan's got a very evangelical kind of dad. He's 77, I think. And so he like texts us Bible quotes. He texts Jordan my Bible quote every day from whenever he reads it every day. And he like goes and preaches or like he reads, he does Bible study at the prison that's in California. Like one of his missions in life is to help people find their way to Jesus and God. And so it's just interesting, all of it. Like how much do I like push on yeah. that? And how much do I let it end? Because I can feel his heart in that. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, we're working on it. We're working on it. I felt good enough. This has been my commitment is one service at a time. Nice. That's been my commitment to Jordan, to our friends and that are now in attending certain services and stuff where I'm like, I'm one service at a time. Y'all don't have to check on me every time. If I'm here, I'm still open. I'm listening. I'm getting value. I'm probably, yeah, budding at the end of everything <laughs> that said. So I'm said and I'm like, yeah, but. 
I'm like, I have a healthy dose of skepticism still. And I'm generally open. And of course, I'm like, I don't do so well with the ones that are like, they see that I'm a little bit open. And then they're like, Oh my gosh, I heard you say this on the podcast. Oh my gosh, I saw you post on your social media. Here's a book, you need to listen to this book or read this book. And like, all of a sudden, they're just like trying to really nudge me in that direction. But they don't understand. They think that they're just one. Yes. But there's many of them that do that. And then I'm like, you motherfuckers are crazy. <laughs> yes. Like, no. So it's weird. And I'm still open. Yeah. <sighs> so, well, thank you. I know I didn't plan to go here for the last like 15, 20 minutes. So this podcast is a little over the hour and 15 mark. And so I'm so grateful <laughs> that I originally planned for the hour and a half here, just in case. But Justin, it's been really amazing getting to have this conversation with you. I mean, it's unlike any combo that I've had on the show in many categories. And so I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your heart and your story so vulnerably and so openly. Some people I think share with you how much your story has impacted them in a positive, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands more that won't reach out for many reasons. But just know, as I know that they're there, yeah. I'm sure you do too on some level. And so I just want to take like an extra moment and, and validate you on your journey and just share so much gratitude. You know, it's really, really, really important work. And I'm impressed by you wow. and, and your willingness to show up and to share and to heal, help others on their healing journey through your experiences. And in an interesting way, I almost feel like I know Emily too now. <laughs> Yeah. And she sounds amazing. And so send her my regards. <laughs> I will. I will. And I'll, I'll send you the forward too, if you want. Amazing. Um, you guys want. Yeah. But I really appreciate you and you having me on this podcast, Alexa, and for being a voice and giving other people voices. I've listened to several of your podcasts too, and I love what you're doing and have so much respect for it. And I can't thank you enough for having me on the show. So good. I appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. If you loved it, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. And if you extra, extra loved it, make sure to leave a five-star review. I'll see y'all next week.